You're listening to Riverview Church Conversations, a podcast for the spiritually curious. Well, good morning, good evening, good day. I say good day, sir. <laughs> Wherever you're listening from, welcome back to the Riverview Church Conversations podcast. You're here with me, Ryan and Reese. Hello, Reese. Hi, Ryan. How's it going? Yeah, pretty well. I'm doing pretty well That's today. Good. It's uh, as you might hear us mention later on in the chat. It's it's we're in the in between election results in the US. Exciting. So it's kind of lively around the office. There's plenty of uh, Biden versus Trump chat. Um, yeah. yeah, it's probably a good thing to distract us from, you know, kind of other things. Like, I don't know what. Uh, but I have a question for you, Ryan. Yes, this is controversial because normally I fire them out. Yeah, I'll, I'll I've hold got, one for you later I've anyway. got one. I yeah, have yeah. one question. Yeah, and on. we're talking about what happens after life today. And my question for you is, Ryan, burial or cremation? Cremation, 100%. Okay. I, in fact, I, um, I'm a big Star Wars fan. Oh, yeah? So I... Almost, I joke with Renee, she doesn't like it, the joke, but that I want to have a funeral like Qui-Gon Jinn where you are, you're burned oh, yes. alive and everyone comes and there's Ewoks and I know they're not in that one, but they start singing. And yeah, they have a big, a big party. Ooh, yeah. yeah. You could be jettisoned into space. Your thoughts, Reese? Yeah, I'm, I'm a cremation guy. I, th- I think that it's probably cheaper. Mm. And less less stuff mm. to organize, maybe? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, less I'm, fuss. I'm also a fan of, um, have you heard of the liquid cremations? You were telling me about yeah. This. <laughs> so they 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 put you in an alkali solution and they and you get dissolved and then you get like a little instead of getting the ashes you get the little um, good for the garden you get a bit of a vial and I think you can pour it on your plants so instead of scattering the go. ashes you can like plant a tree and dust there you go. to dust hey and so good there you go what I actually think that that'd thing. be a great um a great little diversification of um a little side hustle you know churches you could start a little funeral home. Because you, you know you got like an endless yeah. kind of stream of clients, your <laughs> your uh, your constituents would uh, would trust you with their with their end of life process, and you could kind of do like a little eco cremation scenario. There you go. I should pitch it started, to the board. We've started pretty um, yeah pretty dark, but that's okay. We're talking today about a bit of heaven and hell. Now, mm. I was thinking to myself as well, Reese, because I normally ask you a question. You mm. just you just commandeered my question. <laughs> Sorry, but no, no, that's okay. I'll still ask you one. Is um. The word paradise. Oh. Give me a sentence. What comes to mind? What's for Reese Mayshell? What's paradise? It's probably not an eternal worship service in heaven <laughs> uh, on a cloud. Pizza followed by naps, followed by water slides, <laughs> followed by Formula One, followed by KFC, and those types of things. That's paradise for me. Mm. For you? Yeah, I mean, probably similar tenants there. Uh, some sort of KFC would be in there. Actually, some Nashville hot chicken. Oh, yeah. Followed by just some like chill couch time. And then, I don't know, go, you know, a nice drive somewhere, exploring something, then more food. It, it, it relates to Probably like a, a pleasant kind of tropical climate maybe. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in my life I probably had moments in which I would say, oh, this is it's paradise. It's actually surprisingly... Less often when I'm on holidays, more often just normal life mm. things when things are great. You've probably had moments where you're like, I'm in hell. Yeah, I've <laughs> yeah, many of those as well. But um, I distinctly like- remember having a moment where I felt like I was being chased by the devil. <laughs> I was about 14 and I, was, I had two paper runs that I did in the morning. I delivered about 150 papers What every suburb morning. did you go through? Well, it was in my suburb. Oh. 
uh, suburb of Linfield. Oh, okay. I but there was one particular street name. that went way down like a winding little thing. And to it was Sheol. very dark and it was very, very windy and it was very cold and, man, I was spooked. I was like, the devil is out to get me. I've got to get out of here real quick. Did he get you? No, he didn't get me. <laughs> I managed to run away. <laughs> well, hey, uh, thanks for tuning in as always. Um, we are continuing today our conversation on how did we get here. And of course, as we've previously mentioned, and we'll mention a little bit in the interview, we, we wanted to do this with a number of different topics. But today is um, going to be a fun one. We are talking about how did we get here in relation to heaven and hell, the mm-hmm. afterlife, our um, views on what happens in, after that moment that you you pass from this life into the next? What's there? Who's going to be there? What's it like? What's the temperature set at? Is my cat going to be there? Well, we'll find out that and more right here with our favorite guest. Well, I'm not allowed to say that. One of, our fav- one of our favorite guests, <laughs> uh, Dr. Michael Frost. Well, Dr. Michael Frost, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this is your second appearance. I guess that makes you a friend of the show. That's right. Repeat guest, friend of the show. Glad to be here, but not yes. yes. We, we we need to get over, some over some there. t-shirts made up and we'll get one sent over to you. Actually, shipping costs might Good. be too much, Michael. Sorry. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's okay. I will not send you one of mine either. Um, we're, we're in an interesting position today. We're in... Uh, we're in U.S. election purgatory right now as we're recording this. We're stuck between we what, what could have been and what might be. I'm feeling a little bit, I don't know. I don't know how I'm feeling about it right now. <laughs> it's kind of on point with the conversation as well. I feel yes, like. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It is. Uh, I think there is a surprising number of people in, in the world who are feeling deeply anxious about what's going on over there at yes. the moment. Uh, which is a curious thing. We're more interested in their election than our own. I know, right? It's it's strange. It's strange. Yeah. Um, so today, we've come to talk about yes. what happens after life. Mm, it's a massive conversation, right? Um, mm. And we we thought we would begin this conversation as part of our "How Did We Get Here" series. So previously, um, we caught up with Tim Healy and spoke about how did we get here in relation to the Bible. And we, um, Reese and I had been speaking quite a bit. Is there's, there's a number of different areas of faith and of life in which I feel like it'd be helpful to gain a bit of a perspective as to how we arrived with the thoughts and perspectives and ideas um, in relation to a said topic. So we've done the Bible. We want to do one on the church. We want to do one on the gospel. Mm. We want to do one on free will, Michael, which would be an absolute hoot. Maybe oh, we'll get you back for that please. one. And um, to the- great, I, I suppose we'll do that if the Lord That's- wills it. <laughs> he, he will. He does. Uh, theology jokes. <laughs> but today, today is um, absolute hoot. We are going to be talking about heaven and hell, the afterlife, and how did we get here in relation to our views and perspectives, and maybe um, how do we move from here as well with our views and perspectives and 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 um, ideas around heaven and hell, Reese. Questions? Should we just die? Yeah, I've got a question. <laughs> I got a question for you, Michael. What happens when we die? Oh, look, that's very straightforward, Reese. Uh, <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks very much for that. Uh, this will be the shortest episode ever. Um, yes, look, 
the trick, the com- the complicated thing about having a conversation about what happens when we well, it's complicated for a number of reasons. One is because it might be a really interesting theology chat, but for some people, it's a very tender topic to talk about because it it um, maybe it relates to a close friend or a family member or the questions that we have about about the grief that we carry. Right, so there's this kind of complicated way that we approach this, and sometimes in in theological circles, that it gets treated as this like fun. Um, Topic, which it kind of is in one sense, but but um, but there's also the sense that it carries real sort of meaning for people, and so it's it, it's tricky to talk about from that perspective, or at least something we have to be mindful of as we as we talk about it. And then it's it's also complicated because all of us are alive, right? And so we are talking often when we're talking about belief or theology, uh, we're drawing on our experiences uh, to some degree, at least. Of, of life, maybe of our faith, of spirituality, of God. But when we are um, talking about life after death, mm. um, in that sense, we are unable to draw on our experience because we're all mm. still here. And all the people who, you know, who, who know the answer to this question, <laughs> if, if, there is, if there is one, right, are, uh, uh, are not here. So, so we find ourselves in this interesting kind of territory of, of having these conversations that really do matter, but... Um, but without perhaps the same level of data, if you like, that we that we often have when we go to have important conversations. So, so that's I guess just to just to to say uh, up front that it's a complicated um, territory to talk about. Um, and and the Christian tradition itself is not um, is not universal, or <laughs> to use that word, um, it, it's not entirely consistent throughout the tradition across all time, as it isn't on many things. Um, and so whenever we talk about things like this as well, we have to, we have to say, okay, what are the, the big ideas, the big threads that, that find their way within the Christian church and the Christian tradition, and how do we have a conversation about those perspectives and, and find something that we think might be helpful uh, for us going forward? Yeah, so that's not answering your question at all, but <laughs> no, it is at least uh, <laughs> it's at least setting the scene to 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 move forward from, right? Mm, I, I think to myself about um, my perspectives, or at least growing up, uh, the things that were offered to me in relation to the afterlife, in in the sense of you know what it might look like, who's going to be there, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And, and I was I was just thinking before, uh, you know, the depictions of heaven. Being essentially like a little little babies with wings, playing harps, floating around, evanescent glow coming off me, um, not getting sunburnt but being close to the sun. I mean, that's that is heaven for me, not really. Um, <laughs> but and then on the other side, depictions of of hell being um, almost a bit like like Plato's cave, where you're like weirdly strapped into this this thing and you see shadows and there's a little red horned creature that walks around poking you with a pitchfork like that and, like and genuinely these were yeah, exactly genuinely these were almost some of the depictions that were offered um even at least in my tradition growing up um you know whether that's through um christian forms of media or, or little books or even just you know like anecdotes and and thoughts it is like i'm aware that's just one perspective and one view um 
obviously there's many perspectives and many views on 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 heaven and on hell but but how did we end up especially in the west with with a, a view like that on heaven and hell and is it helpful is it accurate is it um actually setting us up or or setting young people up who are hearing stories like that up well for um understanding you know what might be or yeah sure yeah um well i guess there's as with all of these things, there's multiple layers to to that answer as well. Um, but yeah, I, I don't I don't think those depictions are particularly helpful or accurate. Uh, but they've they've sort of emerged over time, really. So within the Western Christian tradition, in particular, uh, you get over time some dominant ideas emerge and become kind of the the dominant framework or paradigm for the way people think about heaven and hell. And so you know the the sort of the, the good place and the bad place, right, and and what that kind of entails. Uh, and then over time it translates into wider popular culture, especially in, in the West. Uh, and so as you kind of move through time, those ideas that are quite theological move into the, I guess what we might call sometimes folk theology of the people on the ground who aren't necessarily um, trained to wrestle with these kinds of issues or to read the scriptures in a particular kind of way. But... It's it's artistic depictions that then translate into the, the the minds of young people and you know and that that kind of thing just builds over time and so you get you get these ideas which maybe in the first place weren't necessarily the most helpful way of of reading the text and 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 thinking about what's coming out of the the Jesus story in particular uh, and then you find them translated into sort of pop culture and folk culture to the to the point where in in kind of the West those are those are depictions of heaven and hell that you'll find. Um, immediately come to mind for people who have never been mm. to church at all. That's still, like the Simpsons that's still the view, that's almost. To come to yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you watch. Um, if you watch an episode of The Symptoms, Simpsons that's trying to deal with <laughs> play with issues of that, th- those are exactly the images yeah, yeah. you're you're going to get. Um, so yeah, some some unhelpful ideas that then that then find their way through to that kind of popular level. I think it's one like yeah. not everyone. We haven't always thought of there being heaven and hell. So right. what, 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 what's almost, where did that come from? What are the, what's the precursor to that? How, how did we get to this place? Is there a particular moment where, say, like the early church went from thinking one thing to another? Or like you say, is it just a slow, gradual evolution? Or is there like, at some point they go, hang on, this is actually what we think, and then they kind of changed course, you know? Uh, no, I, I don't think it's it's one particular point in time where suddenly everybody swings. I think there are influential thinkers who who propose things at time or who make arguments for things at time. Someone like Augustine or or, or whoever it might be who who lay down a particular argument that does get picked up as as the dominant thing. But I guess one of the one of the things that's happened there is is the movement from a very you know the scriptures are steeped in a Jewish worldview. Uh, you know, the Old Testament, this kind of ancient Israel and the story of, um, you know, these Hebrew people who become this nation Israel, uh, the Jewish faith that forms around that. Um, and a lot of imagery is very familiar within that worldview and within that kind of theological way of understanding the world that flows into the New Testament and into the Jesus story and into the early church. And then as the church um, over the next hundred years or so in particular transitions from being a primarily Jewish religious movement to being a primarily non-Jewish religious movement, I think there's a translation issue, not just word for word, but the way that imagery functions. 
when you move from essentially one culture and language to another, where you now got people engaging in these texts and then these stories, um, both of the Old Testament and also of Jesus and the imagery that he uses as a Jewish prophet. And you've got them doing so now trained in Greek philosophical thought and Plato and, you know, um, and so the the translation of those images and those ideas into that new um, worldview, um, I think, distort some of those messages along the way. And then that kind of gets reinforced and, and built on over time. And so you end up, I think, quite a long way away from where those first, um, what those first images and stories are supposed to be bringing to mind for us. So, you know, if you think about the influence of Plato and of, and of um, Neoplatonic thought or, you know, some centuries after Plato, the kind of um, thinking that comes out of Plato, which we often call a, a kind of dualism, uh, where, where all the non-physical world is seen as the most pure and the most good and the physical world is a kind of corrupt and, and, and corrupt kind of place. Embodiment itself is kind of corrupt. And so the notion of, of escaping this physical corrupt world because of all its gross embodiedness and physicality, to this pure kind of ethereal, non-physical world is a very um, dualistic and not particularly Christian way of reading some of these stories in, in the Bible. Uh, but when you layer that level of interpretation onto those stories, you end up with something quite different to what they intend. So, so let's say that um, I'm average Jewish person in around about the time that Jesus was doing his thing. What, what mm-hmm. would I be thinking about what happens after death? Well, if you, if you go back to the Old Testament, for starters, there's actually very little on life after death in the Old Testament. So um, there's, there's, very, uh, there's very little on heaven or hell as ideas. There's very little on afterlife itself as an idea. Um, the, the predominant term for where, sort of what happens at death in that Old Testament uh, worldview is, is the term Sheol, which is, can be translated kind of loosely as, as the grave, but it's a, it's a bit more mystical than the grave. It's sometimes, sometimes translated as something like the shadowy abode of the dead um, to try and, you know. Sounds very there's, there's, metal. There's kind of a, yeah. <laughs> there's, um, there's something sort of slightly mysterious about it um, but we don't quite know what that is. Some some surrounding nations, you know, think about Egypt and, and other countries in the ancient Near East, had quite well-developed um, mythologies around what happened when you die in the afterlife and going down and, you know, getting on the boat and going down the river and and so on. Uh, in the Jewish worldview, it's, it's, very, um, it's very vague and not developed at all. So um, you do get uh, in some of the writings uh, in the Psalms and also in some of the prophets, for example, these hints or suggestions or hopes that maybe God in some way might deliver us from Sheol. Um, But it's not always clear that they're using Sheol then itself even to talk about real physical death. Uh, Sometimes they're using it poetically to talk about the experience of kind of you know, deliver me from the grave is kind of deliver me from my from my enemies and from all the bad things that are happening to me. Sometimes also there is this um, there's this hope that maybe God will deliver us from Sheol or or death will um, 
be swallowed up in victory or death will lose its sting or, or something like that. So there are these hints and nudges and hopes, if you like, in the Old Testament that um, that uh, there might be some kind of something that means that it's not just dead and it's all over. When you get into the time between the Old Testament and Jesus, then you start layering in a bunch of ideas and interpretations. And so by the time you get to Jesus' time, there's quite an active debate about the idea of resurrection, for example, and whether that's something Jewish people should believe in or not. So Sadducees and Pharisees are the kind of famous example of the two groups who disagreed about this issue. The Sadducees believed there was no resurrection, and the Pharisees believed there was. And that comes up at one point in the Gospels um, when Jesus is having a, a debate with them. So at the time of Jesus, there's actually lots of views. There's lots of imagery. There's different schools of thought on people speculating on, is there life after death or is there not life after death? Um, and there are people following those different schools of thought. So there's no sort of one answer to the question of what a Jewish person in the first century would have believed about this, but there certainly were a range of views that were held, uh, and, and it was an active, ongoing discussion at the time. One other, one other thing to say about that, because, um, and I, it's kind of connected to this, which is that the word salvation itself, which is in the Old Testament as well, is never in the Old Testament being used to talk about getting saved from hell because they don't even have the concept of hell in the Old Testament. So they have Sheol at best, but when they talk about salvation and God is our salvation, you know, the, the Psalms are full of that kind of language as, as are some of the other texts in the Old Testament. Salvation is a much bigger idea uh, and it's about, it's about Israel, it's about oppression, it's about injustice, it's about liberation, uh, it's, you know there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of words and images that are trying to capture what is meant by this term that God is our salvation and God will save us, but they certainly don't mean God will save us because we'll pray a prayer and get to go to heaven one day. That's that's not in the mindset at all in, in the ancient Jewish worldview. Mm. I've I've got uh, two questions um, and I'll kind of let you answer them in whichever order you prefer because I'd love to almost get back to that question. The first is about yeah salvation as not just simply avoiding hell um, mm-hmm. and, and some of the stuff you said. I'm, I'm wondering if you can expand on that a little bit. But I, I also had a question in relation to um, what you were speaking about in terms of a Jewish perspective and a, con- a Jewish context for some of the language that they're using. I was just thinking even about, um, for example, I think it's in Second Peter where he uses a lot of poetic and um, apocalyptic language which – obviously had a Jewish context and framework and understanding. Um, do you feel like some of that, I mean, we, we did our last How Did We Get Here in relation to the Bible. Do you feel like some of these perspectives on hell and what happens, um, uh, you know, on the final days and all of those kind of things come from us not seating that in its proper context and understanding the, the kind of Jewish perspective behind some of those things? Yeah, I think we've got a huge number of problems yeah, because of that. Um, and, you know, even in our translations that, that we work with, you know, Jesus, for example, uses uses at least, you know, he used two different words in particular for hell. One is Hades and one is Gehenna, and he uses them in, in different ways, but they all get translated into as hell in most of our, in most of our Bibles. Um, the two Peter example, I think, is using a Greek word, Tartarus, uh, which is, is it pulling not only on a Jewish worldview, but a little bit of sort of Greek... Um, mythology at the same time. Uh, and so um, 
when we miss all of that and we kind of flatten it all out and we what happens is we have a concept in mind and then we come to the text and every time we read that word for example we've got something we just we chuck straight in there and say this is what that means rather than being able to kind of do it the other way around which is to say how is this image or word or idea being used in its context and in its place and let that shape the kind of conclusions that we draw um so you know Jesus uses Hades, uh, for example, which is essentially like the the because he's New Testament's in the Greek language, and Hades is essentially the Greek equivalent of the Sheol from the Old Testament. So, uh, on this, you know, uh, you are Peter, and on this on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So there's this there's this idea that somehow uh, the sort of the shadowy grip of death itself will not be able to stand against you know the the church. It's certainly not. Um, supposed to bring to mind uh, sort of gates and a, and a fire and a, and a red devil with with prongs who gets overrun, you know. Um, so that's that's that term. And then most of the time, almost all of the time, when Jesus is using a word that we read as hell, he's using the term Gehenna, which is used um, differently, actually, within the Jewish tradition by different schools of thought again. Um, but it's a physical place. So... Gehenna is referring to the Valley of Hinnom, which is a valley sort of out the back of Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, the Valley of Hinnom or the valley, sort of the, the place of Gehenna is the place where, um, where, the, where child sacrifice was performed to uh, what the Old Testament calls the detestable god Molech, um, which, and this god was a detestable uh, god to, to serve and to worship, demanded even your, your children from you. Uh, you know, there are some some suggestions that, that that what they would do is they would take the idol of Molech and they would uh, they would heat it up. Uh, it had its arms outstretched in front of it, and you would have to go and place your your infant child into the into the burning arms of this of this idol of Molech, and uh, and and the the child would would sort of die in the through being burnt uh, through its contact with with this burning or hot idol. So that's the kind of practice that at times in the Old Testament they they um, they fall into, right? So they they decide that Yahweh is not giving them a good enough deal. Maybe if they sacrifice their children to Molech, that will get them what they need or what they want. And um, and so some of the prophets, Jeremiah, for example, sort of pulls on this metaphor of Gehenna. Uh, Jeremiah, in particular, uses it as a as an image of judgment, but he's not here using it as an image of judgment for this is where you'll go when you die if you're bad people. He's using it as an image of judgment for if you continue to persist in, in violence and um, oppression and in, and in devouring widows and the poor and so on, you're going to find yourself um, essentially thrown into the valley, the valley of Hinnom. You're going to find yourself being consumed by the very violence and hatred that you've been um, propagating. And he talks about this before their destruction and, uh, by by Babylon, in which they go into exile, and many of the dead bodies, are, you know, um, are piled into the valley uh, of Hinnom, and so it becomes this kind of even again even more sort of cursed kind of image. So when Jesus uses Gehenna, right, to bring it back to, to Jesus, when Jesus is using Gehenna, uh, he's using it in a very very similar kind of vein. If you continue living in this kind of way, then you're going, to, you're going to end up reaping the consequences of the violence and injustice that you perpetrate. And, um, and he could see, I think, a course that, that many, of the, 
many of the zealots were on in the first century, which is they were wanting to take up violence against their oppressors and they were wanting to um, they were wanting to kill their enemies and and for the streets to run red with the blood of the Romans. And Jesus is, is warning them a lot of the times, if you continue on this kind of path that you find yourselves on, all the different things that put you on that path to kind of destruction, you're going to find yourself... Um, it would be better for you, you know, he, he often talks in that kind of language that you do this, rather than you end up there, rather than you end up in, in the Valley of Hinnom, rather than you end up in, in Gehenna, this kind of symbol of what happens when your violence totally overcomes you and turns back on you and you end up being consumed by mm. it. Um, so that's a very long answer to your question. No, but, but essentially it's, it's like that, yeah, that kind of imagery in the Jewish mind is being employed here by Jesus. And, and, and if we miss that, then we read Jesus, then we assume, oh, he's talking about, He's talking about what happens when you die. And I think that's a perfect segue almost into that next question, which is around salvation and the offer that Jesus almost invites us to participate in is not just about avoiding a a place that you will go one day hell, but there's 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 a almost like a wider spectrum of of salvation. Yeah. Um. So so one of the ways. There's a few different ways of thinking about salvation, and there's actually lots of different metaphors that are used for it um, in Scripture. So sometimes there's words that are that are trying to recall a liberation from slavery of some kind. You know, so redemption itself is a is a word that's 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 recalling that kind of image of of being liberated from from enslavement. Um, one way I find particularly helpful of of thinking about salvation is that in the in the kind of narrative of Scripture itself, there's this invitation, even very early on in the book of Genesis, to think about uh, humanness and wholeness in terms of um, these fundamental or core relationships. Uh, so the idea that uh, humans, are, the desire of God for humankind is that they have a harmony of relationship with God, uh, with others, with them, in, in and of themselves, there's a, a sense of wholeness in themselves and there's also a, a sense of harmony with creation, right? So these kind of four core relationships and, and uh, when the Jewish uh, would use the word shalom, for example, shalom, which we often translate as peace, which is kind of a, a quite sort of narrow or shallow uh, rendering of that, of that term shalom, it's bringing to mind the sense of, of harmony with God, self, others and, and creation. And... What scripture is is often doing is then portraying, painting, or, or, or describing all of the ways in which we um, participate in damaging those relationships. The way that we uh, destroy one another, the way that we um, destroy ourselves, the way that we, you know, those relational worlds kind of break down through envy or jealousy or hatred or violence or murder or. Um, adultery or you know whatever it might be all of those are trying to capture the sense of, of what happens when we when we act in ways that that distort corrupt and damage that sense of shalom or of, of harmony and so when we talk about um, and that's that's both at a personal level and also at kind of a st- structural level so it can be personal in the sense that um, I can I can damage that shalom when I um, reach through the screen and, and, and punch Reese right in the face, you know. Um, but we can also damage that shalom when we enslave entire peoples, right? So it can move from the very, very personal and individual right through to these kind of communal and structural systems that, that act to um, perpetuate systems of, of, um, of oppression or racism or, or whatever it might be. 
So when we talk about the idea of salvation, the invitation is to, in fact, participate in uh, an entirely different way of being in the world in which those key relationships are being restored and reconciled. And, um, and for Jesus then, th- there's this idea that through Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, God is reaching into the story and reconciling all to God's self so that through that kind of reconciling, we might also see that that same kind of salvation, if you like, or reconciliation flow into those other relationships, flow into the way that we treat one another, into the way that we see and relate to ourselves uh, and the environment around us. Uh, and in such a way that it's not just a personal thing, but it flows into the systems and structures that we build. So this idea of salvation then is, is, is this invitation away from... Um, Maybe that what we are at our worst, and toward what we are when we when we're actually able to lean into uh, to God's vision for human flourishing, uh, and of course that we can project that out and say what are the future consequences of that. But ultimately, that's the kind of the vision of salvation that I'm seeing in in, in the New Testament story. And so, even if you read you know um, the New Testament letters after the Gospels, so much of them is dealing with how do we relate to each other. Uh, that's seen as integral to the to the kind of project of salvation, if you like, how we're actually relating to people who we're finding it difficult to get along with. Um, so it's this big, all-encompassing kind of work of God in the world through us to reconcile us to God, to others, to self, and, and to creation. I'd be interested to know if you'd be able to, um, this might be just for my own uh, curiosity, um, pinpoint some of the big cultural things that have happened along the way that maybe have got us to kind of that vision of heaven and hell. I mean, I think of being about five or six years old and seeing a, um, a Baptist church stage production of Pilgrim's Progress and being freaked out by the depictions of like heaven and hell. And I also remember um, seeing some kind of a video on, on a Sunday night at Mount Roscoe Baptist Church, and the devil was uh, was this bat flying around this dark castle with this yellow moon, and I was like, "Oh, wow, that's that's a bit intense for a five or six year old to see." But obviously, there's been a few things. That, I mean, I think about like you can think about kind of art through kind of like the Middle Ages and all that type of stuff. Like, would you be able to describe a couple of the big the big things just so that we can kind of know them when we see them? Yeah, sure. I, I think. Um so it's really it's it's really around the fourth or fifth century um, that that kind of the the heaven hell motifs that we that we have now probably come into the theological work in a much more dominant way, especially in the Western tradition. The Eastern Church is slightly different, but uh, so so um, with people like Augustine and others, and, and it's probably no surprise that at the time Christianity was also becoming an empire, right? And and so the notions of of kind of um, be compliant with this or you'll suffer forever. Um, that's a pretty effective way to, to ramp up the um, allegiance t- to the empire. So that's like one of the things that's going on to reinforce that particular framework. And then um, you obviously get theologians kind of speaking t- to that and, and continuing to shape that over time. I think one of the big things that stands out in the 11th century is Dante. Um, and so Dante's um, comedy, which I don't know, comedy? <laughs> Not Big lols. It's not it's it's not a rom com, no. um, <laughs> but you know it it and perhaps you know Dante Dante's work can be read at multiple levels and it can be read as this this big allegory for the human journey, 
but it certainly it contains these vivid images of these layers of kind of 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 hell and of the deadly sins and of this kind of journey towards the center um, and it and some of the depictions are where we then draw many of our more contemporary ideas uh, that come to mind so a lot of the a lot of the fantastical imagery that that comes into our mind uh, at a later time you know I, I, I'm walking down Queen Street in Auckland and someone came up and thrust a wonderful little gospel tract into my hand uh, and it had you know had an image on the front and it was a demon licking a sword <laughs> oh. uh, and the and and the, just the blood was dripping down his face from the sword because the sword was cutting his mouth and it just said, want to spend eternity with this guy. And, and turn it. Looks like a time. And then you, uh, you turn it over and it says, the first thing is, you will if you end up in hell, you know. So that kind of fantastical imagery that, that lots of artists then build on and, and kind of develop all sorts of different sort of motifs for. Uh, most, a lot of it that does stem from, from Dante's work and kind of spins out of there, I think probably what that imagery does, in a sense the imagery is more powerful than the, the, the hefty theological tomes being written by the by the scholars because the imagery, um, a little bit like music, probably shapes our theology more than the complex theological work sitting in the library uh, because the imagery functions for us in a very potent kind of way at a very popular grassroots kind of level. And um, yeah, so so that's probably the big one to, to note. And then you have like a... My personal favorite, heavy metal, which has plenty of imagery going on, and then one that's not really my favorite, but one that I've seen plenty of, is the Left Behind series, talking about yes. uh, you know the rapture and and all of that. So yeah, how did how did I mean that's obviously a more recent, well, somewhat recent uh, development on that depiction of heaven and hell. Can you just talk into that? Like, where did that come from? That just spiraled very quickly. The left behind situation, yeah, yeah like the kind rapture of, and all of that. Yeah, right. So, um, so again, it's a, it's a it's a it's a non contextual reading of of um, of some of what's called apocalyptic literature in in the Jewish and Christian scriptures. Uh, and apocalyptic literature is a is a, essentially a Jewish way of talking about spiritual and political realities that are currently going on. But in a way that's kind of symbolic and layered in imagery, so that uh, it's it's kind of it's not obvious what you're saying, um, which maybe doesn't help us because it's not obvious what they're saying. But you know, if you're in the, but, you know, so yeah. an example in the in the Old Testament would be the second half of the Book of Daniel, which is written under this really kind of oppressive rule. And so, rather than saying we think these emperors who are ruling us are really evil and we want to overthrow them, you you develop these. Um, complex images and symbols of of a statue that's hit by a rock, and you know, you know, all and there's then someone like a son of man comes and and his eyes are blazing like fire. That's that's very apocalyptic language. But, but we do that. Well, even we do that today with movies and things like that, right? You know, most movies right. are pushing um, some layered, almost agenda beneath it that is using story and imagery and metaphor mm. to kind of capture a, a very real life. Reality, so it's yeah. almost not that yeah. distant to what we would do today. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's it's speaking about. Uh, I mean, fantasy literature does that still, right? Which is it's speaking about real human issues, but it's doing so with all of these layers of of, of fantasy. Uh, the Book of Revelation is is one that's clearly doing this. It's it's trying to wrestle with what it is to be a Christian in the under the thumb of the Roman Empire, and where your loyalties and your allegiance are going to lie. Are they going to lie with the 
the sort of the violent empire who's demanding something of you, or are they going to lie with the lamb that was slain and you're going to follow the way of, of self-giving love, um, even if it costs you, you know? So um, you don't if you're carrying if you're carrying that letter around, you don't necessarily want to bump into a Roman soldier who's going to open it and uh, and the opening line is we think the emperor is the worst, um, <laughs> right? So 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 the the Jewish imagery helps kind of. Um, Helps you with your subversive literature, uh, and and it's speaking to very real political and spiritual realities. But but what happens in and what happens in in the nineteenth century essentially? So it's a, it is a relatively recent thing. Is that um, people in the US and also in the UK um, decide that there is this elaborate kind of system of coded messages hidden within these texts that we can used to figure out a whole bunch of stuff about what's going to happen now and in the future. And so rather than seeing it as these texts that were written for the people of their time about very real reality, which still do speak to us today, we're still wrestling with empire and force and violence and all of those things and how we respond to that as faithful followers of Jesus. You know, it's not like that's an irrelevant story to us at the moment. Um, but not it's, it's, it's relevant to us in a very challenging way way because it's challenging our complicity in systems of 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 violence, oppression and injustice. And so perhaps it's easier in some respects to turn it into a coded system about what might happen in the future. And then um, that really caught on. So in kind of a, a revivalist, in particular in America, it's, it's really had good staying power in America. Uh, amongst kind of revivalist Christianity, you then get someone come along who says, did you know that all of these texts are actually speaking about these events that are unfolding? Uh, and that's very kind of captivating. It sounds exciting, and it's kind of secret knowledge that you get to have the inside word. And on if you're and in, you're start in. To look around I mean. at events. Yeah, that's right. And um, and so then all all of these sort of schemes and 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 charts and diagrams and oh, when they said seven, what they meant was you know seven you know years times uh, three and a half years divided by you know twelve feet, and it's it's just you end up with these very complex systems of trying to then predict um, all sorts of stuff. Um, that might or might not happen, and you know, weirdly, that that kind of interpretation of scripture is is shaping things as important as you know the foreign policy of the United States of America, for example, as they as they have this distinct influence from people who read the scripture in that kind of way and see that the U.S. is somehow playing this particular role in end time events based on a particular reading of a of an ancient apocalyptic text. So, so it seems in light of much of this conversation, um, it, it, in some senses, it's important to revise our perspectives and and probably return to scripture, so to speak. But I think that's mm-hmm. not as easy as you know, just literally picking up the Bible and just understanding it. There's a lot of work that goes you into just that. Push the reset button. Yeah, and and I, I think I mean even looking um, at the landscape people have been gotten into a lot of trouble for trying to move forward. I mean, I even think of people like Rob Bell, right, who who writes a book called Love Wins, who has a, you know, a bit of a controversial view on heaven and hell. Um, but this guy just gets kind of crucified by, um, I don't know, mainstream Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, could you just, like, why, why does... Why does that happen? Is that just a, a fear of you know pushing against the the traditions and the, the the statements of belief? And if that gets pushed against, well, we can't have that. Like, yeah, I mean, 
I don't want to imply through all of this that, that the Bible or that Christian faith has nothing to say about about you know life after death, and maybe we can talk about that. But but I think the the error certainly the the error I think that one of the errors that's been made is that Christianity has been reduced to this kind of transaction that you make with God because of Jesus that allows you to now go to heaven instead of hell. And if Christian faith can be summed up by that kind of formula, then if someone comes along and she has a different perspective, that that's going to erode or undermine your entire, um, the entire construct that you've built your faith on, the entire reason you might even be a Christian and that you tell other people to be Christian. So someone comes along and says love wins, um, challenges some of those those kind of mainstream ideas, that's seen as pulling the rug out from under the entire Christian faith. Um, and so that becomes very threatening to people. It's, you know, when I'm teaching in theology in a, in a classroom and and I lay out some different Christian perspectives and say, well, some people hold to this view and some people hold to this view and some hold to this view. Um, you know, when I talk about a view which, which implies that, um, you know, because some in the Christian tradition hold the view that God will find a way to reconcile and and restore all people into a relationship with God uh, and so that ultimately there is no sort of people who will eternally suffer forever. Uh, when I suggest that view to a class and say some some hold this, inevitably every time the class will say, well, then what's the point of being a Christian if that was true? Um, and I often say, well, that's a, that's a good question <laughs> that you should probably have a better answer for. But, but what it tells you is that for a lot of people – despite all of the things they'll tell you about why they're a Christian, when it comes down to it, they are a Christian because it gets them out of hell. Um, so if you if you poke at that a little bit and if you, you prod at that belief, then you're, you're threatening to bring down the whole kind of, the whole house of cards, so to speak. I feel like it's interesting, like maybe I'm uh, connecting two dots that don't connect, but we talk about the, if you distill Christianity down to a transaction where Jesus pays your debt He's sacrificed, mm. and you're talking about like Molech requiring child sacrifice to get what they want. Is is there a parallel there? That seems a bit weird to me, a bit close to home. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the weird again the, the, that that takes us into a whole conversation around how how Jesus saves, right? What does it mean to even say that that Jesus saves? And that's a whole big conversation. But I think I think what the New Testament is definitely not doing is saying God was really angry and had to punish somebody. Um, he's gonna he's gonna torment all of us forever. But then Jesus kind of jumps in and sort of is like, "No, Dad, no," you know. Um, I volunteer I'll, as tribute. <laughs> I volunteer as tribute exactly, and God's and and God the Father is like, well. Normally this wouldn't work, but because you're truly innocent, your blood will really make me okay. Because what I need is the blood of an innocent human being to be poured out on the ground for me to relent and decide to forgive people. Right? If that's that's a, to me a, a deeply un, that's that's Moloch. That's not that's not the Christian God, um, the one who demands human sacrifice in order for appeasement of wrath. So um, although there's sacrificial language in the New Testament, it's not being used in that way. That's, that's what they would call pagan kind of imagery and pagan concepts of, of God and sacrifice that, that aren't what's going on in the Jesus story. 
Mm. So it, it seems, and after our conversation, that there's obviously very complex views and, and it's not always even clear <laughs> even through um, both the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament on what happens after um, after life. However, mm-hmm. Jesus seems to be pretty clear that he's come to bring life and things are moving almost towards a bit of a portrait of, of a new heaven and a new earth. And he's inviting us to participate in that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm I, As you've been speaking, I've kind of been just wrestling through in my mind um, through John 14 and Jesus talking about, in some senses, the way to the Father. And I was thinking, as you were saying, like, I think often we use John 14, which is the scripture where Jesus declares that he's the way, the truth, and the life. We have boiled that down simply to a ticket to an afterlife event as opposed to an invitation to um, not only maybe an afterlife event but almost that shalom kind of life that you spoke Mm. about earlier, that the way to the Father the way to reconciliation with self and, and with God and with others and with creation is is in Jesus, the, the way, the truth, and the life. Um, could you just speak into a little bit then maybe a better way to, to perceive and to live here and now um, rather than maybe getting so caught up in, in what will be, even though we might not know, but then also the the significance of Jesus in that and, and calling people to himself as seemingly some sort of um, pinnacle in, in that exchange. I don't know how that looks or works. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that the idea that I'm the way, the truth, and the life um, is in many senses can be read as such a deeply profound kind of statement that that Jesus' whole way of being, this idea of sort of God with us in Christ, um, that invites us to this entirely different kind of life, right? And that the way to God is through through Christ and the kind of life that Christ is talking about. Um, that's such a rich idea and it gets so cheapened when you just, oh, what that means is you just got to pray this prayer and then you get to go to, to be with the Father, Um you know, to to me, that's such a that misses so much of the richness of the whole the whole kind of story. I mean, elsewhere in in John's gospel, uh, Jesus says, "This is eternal life that you might know God and the one who He has sent." Right. So there's this this idea that eternal life is is lived from now forward. It's it's not out there somewhere. It's this invitation into the reconciled life with God, and then and then through Christ with with others. So, so that's kind of the, if you like, the the, the richness of that invitation um, to participate in God's way of being in the world, which Jesus talks about as the kingdom, uh, is to follow the way of Christ. And there's this, there is something kind of mystical about that because there's this suggestion that we can participate with God in Christ in that process that somehow um, that somehow we are in following the way of Christ and in following his his teachings and his, his life and who he was and uh, what he offers to us we actually get to experience something of that and so it's not just a it's not just a set of political ideas or a or a list of beliefs to hold on to but it's a participatory kind of kind of life that we're that we're invited into that is that is one that has the potential to transform us 
and to transform the communities that we live in instead of being devoured by the the all too common cycles of of human violence and greed and competition and and pursuit of our own kind of ends at the expense of others yeah so it, jesus seems to <laughs> almost I don't, I don't know if he almost seems to not want us to worry about what's going on beyond now, but to like, you know, we were talking a bit off air before. It's almost like within each of us as well, there's a little bit of heaven and hell, <laughs> or good or evil or, or however you want to kind of depict it. And the invitation is almost to today, We, you know, the last episode we did, we talked about kind of living in the present and being here and now and controlling what you can control today, um, it's almost like that invitation is to begin now, like you said, this eternity um, and this life of salvation. Um, obviously that doesn't necessarily nice and nicely and neatly answer all of our questions about what happens on the other side of death. But, mm-hmm. man, that's, that is that is a compelling invitation, right? Like that this is not just about getting your golden ticket to heaven <laughs> for when you die, but it's about life and life to the full and participating with God. Like that's, for me, that's good news, right? Like p- peace. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I look at the world and I go, man, there is something we need. It's that shalom. Imagine a world that is reconciled with self, let alone mm. with others and creation and with God. Like, man, that. That's what will make it. We we don't just need the ethereal place that we become a disembodied reality or not that I don't think that's what it is. But like, man, what if this is about establishing a new heaven and a new earth through that kind of life lived here and now? Oh, that's, oh, love it. Yeah, I think um, sometimes uh, you'll hear people sort of, critique and any attempt to move away from the old kind of very binary paradigms that were kind of very clear and straightforward as a way of trying to, as if it somehow sort of softens the message or it makes it too kind of weak or it's just going with the flow. Um, but I feel like it's it's actually much, um, it's much more potent than than the transactional model. It's much, it's much harder in many respects than just pray the prayer and you get to go to heaven one day, awesome, and just make sure you turn up to church and read your Bible and You'll be you'll be fine. Um, there is this this invitation, which also is a challenge, right? To actually be transformed and to live differently in the world, and um, and there's yeah, ab- beautiful kind of possibility in that idea. In, in a sense, I think the closest we could we can get to, I, th- I think what what the New Testament authors seem to look forward to is this idea that somehow what happened to Jesus will happen to the world, right, will happen to us and, and and to the heavens and the earth. So Jesus in in the resurrection of Christ and, and, and the resurrection becomes this transformative event in the New Testament story that, um, that somehow what happens there um, happens to what God has created so that there will be a transformation into a kind of a new heavens, new earth, which is not, yes, as, as you've already sort of said, not a flying away somewhere, um, but our hope is forward toward 
a transformation of all things, a renewal of all things, you know, so that, that line in, in right at the end of Revelation, behold, I make all things new, this, um, this idea of all things being caught up in this transformative process and becoming fully transformed. That's kind of, that's ultimately, I think, the, the Christian hope. But because, um, because Christ kind of was raised, if you like, in, in, the, in the present, at least what was the present to them, the, the invitation then is some of that transformative life starts to starts to spread um, starts to grow among us it doesn't immediately wipe everything away but it begins to it begins to spread uh, and grow and you know so um, theologian Jürgen Moltmann talks about that as kind of the the beginnings of the springtime of a new creation so he, he uses this kind of image of of the new growth of spring starting to just pop up around the place. And at its best, I think that's that's the challenge to the church is to be to, to people who are trying to follow Christ is to participate in that kind of emerging of something new and beautiful and good, even in the midst of the the kind of complex realities we all have to live through. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the conversation on today's podcast. And we know that we've only really just scratched the surface. Whilst it's been a long conversation, there's many more conversations to be had. Um, but what we wanted to do is just include some helpful show notes uh, for you today with some resources that have been helpful to us. Uh, you can find them just by looking at the description of today's podcast. Of course, as we always mention, we'd invite you to like, subscribe, review, give us uh, five stars out of five stars, not out of ten. Uh, that'd be really helpful for us. Those five-star ones are the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you'd like any more info about Riverview Church, please hop on to riverviewchurch.com. Um, we've got all that. If you're local and you're looking for a, a church to attend, we've got our service times up there and ways to get connected. And our live stream, 5 p.m. on Sundays. That's Australian Western Standard Time. And that stream will be up for 24 hours afterwards. Mm-hmm. Now, our tunes today, as always, are by the very talented Andrew Warong. Until next time. Keep having conversations. Everybody in here that's on the verge of a breakthrough, give God a rain dance right now.